When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. The Slate Culture Gabfest is brought to you by Audible.com, with more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio products. Get a free 30-day trial and a free audiobook at audible.com slash culture. And by Scorebig. Did you know that 40% of all live events go unsold? Scorebig works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get those unsold seats at huge savings. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone, and enter the promo code CULTURE. You'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com promo code CULTURE. And by The Haters, the hilarious road trip novel about music and friendship by Jesse Andrews, New York Times bestselling author and screenwriter of the Sundance Award winner Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. Find The Haters at abramsbooks.com slash the haters. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Fight Inside of Everybody edition. It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2016. On today's show, Lucky Us, we interviewed one of our real favorites, true favorites, Rob Delaney, co-star, co-writer of the Amazon streaming show Catastrophe. And then one of the most revered figures in new journalism, Gay Talese, is being raked over the social media coals about some admittedly boneheaded comments regarding women journalists and writers whom he has a history of not admiring. Are we holding an octogenarian legend to the wrong codes of speech, i.e. ours? And finally, Merle Haggard has died. We discuss one of the greatest of the country greats with our guest, Jody Rosen. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, uh, and Slate's film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hello, Stephen. Julia, do we have business before we get going? Yeah, a couple pieces of business. First of all, we've got some live shows coming up. The Hang Up and Listen Fellows will be performing in Washington, D.C. on April 25th. And the Politics Gab Fest will be doing their first ever Georgia show in Atlanta on April 27th. You can get tickets to both of those at slate.com slash live. And then also I wanted to let listeners know what we're going to be talking about in our Slate Plus segment. We got a listener question at our live show last week, a really interesting one about what songs from the 90s onward will make it into the American songbook. 
a question that may raise questions about the nature of the American Songbook, more so than music since 1990, but we will fight it out with Jody Rosen in Plus. If you're a Plus member, get set for that. If you're not, you can join us at slate.com slash culture plus to get access to extra segments and to support the journalism that Slate does. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, well, Catastrophe Season 1 told the story of an American man and an Anglo-Irish woman who together create an unplanned pregnancy over the course of their one-night stand. The story arc of Season 1 carried them from wham-bam to marriage. Now Season 2 is out, and it's leapt ahead to child number 2 and to the exhilarating of sometimes darkly lit corridors of love, marriage, family, parenthood, and middle age. A friend of mine once, Julia Turner, wisely said, just because it's sour grapes doesn't mean it's wrong, to which I would add, if you love it, it's okay to suck up. I couldn't help it. I told Rob Delaney to his face he'd created something really, truly special. I meant it with all my heart. The three of us traveled to the Crosby Hotel in Soho to interview Rob Delaney. Let's listen. Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, This is an easy dive in for us because we are all rapturous fans of the show. We really are. I will now cede the dialogue to my colleague, Dana Stevens, who is the scholar in residence for the Catastrophe TV show. Dana, (laughs) why don't you lead the uh, questioning? My first question is just about the structure of season one flowing into season two. Mm -hmm. So without spoiling anything, I think, for listeners who haven't seen the show yet, the first season ends on a cliffhanger, Mm -hmm. and the second season begins with an ellipsis, right? Both of which are unusual choices for... um, you know, a a half-hour sitcom season ending and starting. So I wanted to know, is that something that you and Sharon went into this project saying we want to subvert the expectations of the audience, or did it just sort of happen that way? Well, we initially conceived of season two and its subject matter and ideas before we thought of season one. We wanted to do a marriage in progress, and that's what we had kind of imagined. So the pilot script actually had most of the important facts of season one in like the first half of the pilot, which anybody, if you were to rewatch the pilot, that might shock you because the episodes are quite dense every single episode. But our our initial pilot script, the first episode, the pilot episode was so dense that the network was like, this is funny, we think, but could you accordion it outwards by roughly six episodes? (laughs) Because we'd like to see how these people met. So we thought, sure, we'll give it a shot. So we sort of just messed around with um, stretching out their introductions and getting to know each other and falling in love and, and Sharon immediately getting pregnant more and found we really enjoyed doing that. So that became series one, or season one, since we're in the United States right now. And then for season two, we knew absolutely we wanted to dive right into the marriage. We had primed the pump, so to speak, and we wanted to get into the nitty-gritty and the real tough stuff of being having been married for a few years and having a couple of kids. Yeah, so, the, so the order that you find things out about the Rob and Sharon in the show and, and what, what their coupledom has been like is, again, an unexpected order, right? And in fact, there aren't really elements that explain what happened in between season one and season two until about, what, four or five episodes into the, into the new true. season? Yeah. In episode four, we do go into uh, what transpired in the middle uh, somewhat, but even then, not in any great detail. Just because people are smart and why not, you know, let them. And then you feel, I'm always feel, I always feel grateful when, when any sort of creative endeavor uh, leaves blank spots that I can fill in with my imagination. Then I feel more proprietary about it. I want to tell people about it more. I think about it more imagining, you know, it's a little more interactive that way. 
One of the big blank spots in the show that that is beguiling and interesting in that way for me that I think we talked about when we discussed season one last year on our show is your character's underlying goodness. He's like such a stand-up guy. He just keeps standing up through all of the slogging and mayhem and the various, I think this is also not too spoilery, sexy onslaughts of other women in season two. Where did that come from in the show? Was that there from the beginning or something you discovered? Well, having written all the scripts and then poured over them and, and rewritten them, I think honestly that if you did set out, you know, if you just bullet pointed some of the things that each character did in in each season, more the second season, you'd have a pretty, you'd have a respectable list of um, lousy or selfish things that they've done. But I think affinity for the characters uh, where you do sense their their goodness comes from the fact that we show them pretty graphically from every angle. So I think maybe you get to know them better, perhaps, and that's why you're forgiving. Like, I think you might understand some of the more selfish things that they do. And I think maybe the best thing that these characters do is they make a commitment to each other that I think that you feel. So they're in it to win it, so to speak. You know, like, what if you just... I remember somebody saying before I even got married, and I've been married in real life for 10 years, coincidentally, so has Sharon. And I remember somebody saying, you know, they were talking about problems with their own marriage. And they said, well, what if we just took divorce off the table? You know, what if, sure, maybe half of people who get married do that. But what if we just remove, what if we, what if that were a doorway and we just sealed it off with concrete? So, which there's, I don't know if that's the best thing to do, but there is some wisdom in that. Just take it out of the, take it out of the playbook, you know? And, and I think in some way these characters have done that. They start a little older than a lot of romances begin. So, you know, they're not 22. So when Sharon gets pregnant, they really have to think about it. You know, are we going to have kids or just not? I, you've created something that's not only fresh and very fun and very, very funny. It's also unique, I think. And let me put my finger on what I think has made it unique, and you tell me whether I'm right or wrong. It's that it's co-written by both the male lead and the female lead, mm-hmm. which I think in the in the genre is pretty unusual. I mean, these, yeah. they're very often fantasies of one gender or another about right. the other gender. You can't do that here. You're c- collaborating with a woman. Uh, a woman is collaborating with a man. It tells the story in this Ouija board fashion of the two of you working it out the way the relationship is working it out. And I think that's why it rings very, very true. Well, thanks for uh, saying that. And I think that is the key ingredient in the show's success. Uh, and it's. I'm glad that we're doing this interview in New York because it was in within walking distance of here that I would, in 1998, I started going to see the Upright Citizens Brigade uh, do live improv for free every night. You know, you'd have to stand in line for a while to get a ticket, but it was free. And you could see the original Upright Citizens Brigade with um, Amy Poehler, Ian Roberts, Matt Walsh, and Matt Besser. Okay, And they would uh, frequently have uh, Tina Fey would be with them. And this is before she was head writer on Saturday Night Live. Uh, Miriam Tolan would be there, Rachel Dratch, uh, Horatio Sands. So you would see men and women working together and creating on the spot. And that was massively influential to me because I would go and see male improv groups, and they'd be good, um, or all-female improv groups, and they'd be good too. But when men and women work together... Uh, something happens that's just a little more special to me. And even from a, yeah, sure, I consider myself a feminist and progressive and all that great stuff. But 
from a selfish, uh, because I want my show to be good, and from a, like a utilitarian perspective, you want the comedy to appeal to both genders, and you want to round up. If something's funny to group of men, not funny to group of women, I'm not. Why, why the hell would I put that in a television show, or vice versa? You know, I want it. You want it to. So I think it ups your game if you have men and women working together. So that's very, very important to me because I got the script commission to do a show. And I, as soon as I got it, I said, well, I don't want to write it myself. I want to ask Sharon if she would deign to write it with me because that'll make it better, which it did. Are there particular moments or jokes in the show in either season where, where you found that in the working process? Where you're like, here's this moment. It should go like this. This will be great. And Sharon was like, what if this instead or vice versa? I'm going to not answer that exactly, because, only because the first thing that I thought of is illustrative of, of two people working together, and I think there's some male and female stuff to it. There's one scene in the third episode of the second season where um, I think I might have started the first draft of that, and I said um, to her, you know who you remind me of? And she goes, who? And I go, Gollum. You know, uh, Andy Smeagol, the CGI man thing. And then... I she, then I started her dialogue, which was like, "Well, okay, I thought you meant that because." And then I left a blank, and I said, "Sharon, put in a physical attribute about yourself that you don't like." Like I knew enough not to write something about, "Well, here's your gross boy or your whatevers." So that's one thing where I was like, "Fill in the blank," and uh, because I'm still even as well as I know her, I'm not going to write something. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to write something mean to a woman's body that I'm sitting in front of. I'm going to let her do it, so it hurts more. So you and Sharon both use your own names on the show, which is kind mm-hmm. of a sitcom tradition, right? Yeah. Mary Tyler Moore, Bob Newhart. Mm-hmm. But but you do it, I think, in a more autobiographical way than than a lot of same-named sitcoms. And you've said, I think I've read you and Sharon agreeing on this number, that approximately 49% mm-hmm. of the material comes from real life, yeah. right? Um, I'm not sure if that was last season or this season you were talking about, but I'm curious, would you still put that percentage as the same? Do you feel like it's growing or diminishing or changing over the course of the show, how much you reveal? I think it might be getting lower, the amount of uh, autobiographical facts that we're putting into it. For example, any health issues that took place in the first season either happened to Sharon or my wife during the five pregnancies between them. So we had plenty to draw from there now. But then in doing that, I learned that autobiographical fact is not uh, really as important as the feelings of truth, you know, so it's got to feel real It doesn't necessarily have to be real. I'm as a stand up comedian, um, I'm, I have an, an axe to grind here right now uh, that I'd like to talk to the zeitgeist for a moment. Zeitgeist, there are a lot of um, storyteller shows these days, and I really think that needs to be whittled down. Some are good, but most are not. And I would always rather see a stand-up show at any given night at the Comedy Cellar or the Improv than because if you're going to tell people I, – when I was first doing open mics, I'd see people who were like – who'd do a joke or a quote joke, and people wouldn't laugh. And they'd be like, what? That totally happened. Mm-hmm. And I remember realizing, oh, it doesn't matter that it happened. It has to be funny. So if you're going to talk to me through a microphone, my God, please make it funny. And truth, that can come later. Anyway, the real goal here is I'd like there to be less storyteller shows. Um, so in your book and, and also in your stand-up work, you've been very open about your past as an alcoholic mm-hmm. and your struggle to get into recovery. And that, in the second season, starts to come into the show mm-hmm. in some way, too. Is that something that you knew down the line you were going to get into? Or was that something that, you know, as the show grew, you decided to sort of reveal that, that part of your past? In the show? As the show grew. Uh, Sharon had the idea for us to 
crib the the fact that I am sober and have been for 14 years. I didn't think because I've been sober for uh, you know what I consider to be a, a pretty long time. That's not the first thing I think of about myself when I wake up in the morning. I don't absolutely it's a, a critical part of my uh, life and identity and, and important to me. But I, I uh, I'll forget sometimes when I'm just sitting around. It's just not you know I have kids now and I'm married and stuff and busy so. Uh, I didn't didn't I didn't know that that would necessarily be interesting, but I'm grateful that Sharon wanted to include that because, as the as the stressors on them m- multiplied and grew uh, throughout the second season, I think it's a pretty valid uh, story choice that that uh, an alcoholic who is sober could be tempted to uh, not be sober. Right, and then you also have a kind of a. Uh I don't know. Another you have another figure in the show, Dave, the character Dave, the yeah. American, who kind of plays out. You know, he mm-hmm. just kind of plays out the worst fantasies of what yeah. you know not going into recovery could mm-hmm. could lead to. Yeah, yeah. And with him, uh, you know, we didn't know Daniel LePayne would be playing Dave when we wrote the whole first season of the show, and he was just so amazing of an actor and such a pleasure to be around. But we realized, you know, the show as it's developed, actions have consequences, and uh, our characters are going to pay price if they uh, engage in certain behaviors, just like you would in, in real life. And if that's not neat or tidy, then so be it. You know, that's the type of stuff that we'd prefer to explore. Do you te- detect a difference between how the Brits are receiving the show and Americans? Oh, you know, yeah, there's one thing. Generally, no, but the ending of season one was... Um, received less contentiously in the UK than it was here. I think because like uh, the Nazis literally bombed London and there were holes in the ground and people exploding and and there and there's just you know a thousand two thousand years more of white people history in England than there is here so there's a fatalism in British culture where when a quote possibly very bad thing happened at the end uh, of season one, people in the UK were like, yeah, of course. Yeah, why wouldn't why wouldn't they both respond to stress that way? Whereas in the United States, people were like, oh, no, I, I'm sorry, I don't care for it. It went off the rails at the end. That wouldn't happen. And I'm like, hello, have you ever been in a relationship? Have you ever encountered stress? To me, that was like as natural as like knocking over a, you know, a banana. That's a new expression I've made up. <laughs> but, you know, it, like that was almost just like, oh, yeah, gravity exists, you know? So, so there were some American Pollyannas who had a problem with that and I would just like to say that they're wrong. They are wrong. I mean because it was a great way to end it also in part because these two people are under enormous pressure to make everything work throughout season one and then finally they're allowed to scream at each other like normal human beings. And I also think it's kind of American uh, to be like, nothing's wrong, everything's fine, I've made the right decision, and I'm going to make my bend and I'm lay in it, and then, and then totally you ultimately collapse, which I think is nice, whereas a British person might be more inclined to be like, I remember a really hard time with this, and um, I'm so stressed out, I have diarrhea, and I'm smoking, even though I'm not supposed to be, and, uh, you know, just, yeah, whereas American people are like, nothing is wrong, and uh, yeah, some, something's wrong, baby. <laughs> So is there a, a third series, as the Brits say, or a season three definitely um, in the works? We want to make one. I think it would be irresponsible of me. Like, there might be lawyers who got upset if I said yes right now. But uh, I think you know what I'm getting at. They're we want. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Well, we want to make it, and the network wants us to make it. So uh, I'll leave you to form your own conclusions. <laughs> <laughs> Rob Delaney, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really mean it. We love your TV show. It's, it's, you've created something really unique, really special, and it's a privilege for us to talk to you today. Thank you. Well, it's great to speak to you guys because I listen to your podcast. and. Cool. 
Bullshit. Uh, I t- absolutely do when it's about things that I make. And um, <laughs> and 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 Dana, lovely to see you, and lovely to meet you guys. Thank you so much. All righty. Well, that was Rob Delaney, and of course, Catastrophe Season Two is available to you on Amazon.com. It's a show that we all. I think pretty rapturously and unanimously love. Check it out. Tell us what you think of it at facebook.com slash culturefest. All right, Julia, now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our sponsor. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Just go to audible.com slash culture and choose from more than 180,000 audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. One recommendation we have for today comes from Dana. Dana Nana. Yes, since we're spending some time today talking about Gay Talese and his long career in journalism, there is a book by Gay Talese and read by the author on Audible, A Writer's Life, which is a memoir of his years in journalism. So that seems like a promising road to go down if you want to hear him do something besides excoriate female journalists. Or fail to acknowledge them. Unlike a streaming or rental service, with Audible you own your books. Their My Library service allows you to access your books anytime, anywhere, right from your smartphone. And WhisperSync for Voice lets you switch back and forth between reading the book on a Kindle or Kindle app and listening to the audiobook without ever losing your place or missing a word. It works with the iPhone, Android, and Kindle Fire. So go to audiblepodcast.com slash culture. That's audiblepodcast.com slash culture and get started today. All right, Steve, what's next? Thanks, Julia. All right, moving on. Gay Talese is one of the true legends of new journalism. His profile, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold, is required reading for any aspiring journo, still to this day, or it ought to be. It laid the template for the semi-right around how to deal with a subject who is giving you crumbs by way of access and how to balance certain idealization and puffery inherent in the form with wit and skepticism. It's a great piece of journalism, but of course, Talese's career... Uh, goes well beyond it. He was once one of the most talked and written about journalists in America. He's now achieved emeritus status. But he re-entered the news cycle when, at an event at Boston University, he was asked, who are the women writers who have inspired you most? His answer was, did I hear you say what women inspire me most? That's always a good move. Pretend not to have heard the question. The querier said, as writers, he repeated, as writers, I'd say Mary McCarthy was one. He paused. He stammered. And then he said, of my generation, none. Julia, this story grows and ramifies from that slightly toxic seed in several different directions. He was given chances to walk it back uh, or modify it. He did it somewhat, but somewhat ham-handedly. Another aspect of the story is that one reason he's out on the dais right now is he has a New Yorker story out about a motel owner that gets into all kinds of issues about journalistic voyeurism. But let's for the moment, start with this particular exchange. How uncomfortable did it make you? I was not made uncomfortable by this exchange, and I was made uncomfortable by the Internet's response to this exchange. He's an 84-year-old man who was asked who influenced him. Uh, He wasn't influenced by women. You can be disappointed by that, but to be offended by that strikes me as like a misunderstanding of how influence works. He's a particular artist and writer who was influenced by who he was influenced by, and he was honest about it. And we should be glad that the world is changing and we should perhaps be, you know, I think you can learn from it. I mean, one of the things among the many things Gay Talese has covered in his career is, you know, sexual relations between men and women. And to the degree that you think he is or isn't insightful about that, 
the fact that he seems to have given little regard to some of the women journalists of his generation and, you know, as has come out of the woodwork since this incident, may not have the most uncheckered record in terms of dealing with women professionally over time. Uh, there's a story in the Washington Post from a former teaching assistant who he said wasn't perky enough for him when she refused to make him tea because she was already making him copies. Um you know, that's that can inform and enlighten your view of his work. But to say that it's offensive that he was honest about who influenced him, I found offensive. Honestly, I found that whole thread of response to be unilluminating and irritating. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Julia. I completely agree. I mean, just on the, the topic of the actual remarks themselves at the conference and the social media response to them, it seems like this bizarre retroactive policing that says, like, someone who was born early in the last century is is incredibly amiss for not having already subscribed to the values that we hold now 84 years later. It's, it doesn't make any sense. It's it, it honestly was like comical and I think somewhat embarrassing. Now, can it start interesting conversations about how you view his work, what you think about his take on sexual politics? You know, it prompted a bunch of interesting smart women and men journalists to tout the work of interesting female journalists. It caused places like The Cut to publish lists of interesting female journalists. This is all great. Let's pay attention to female journalists if this becomes an occasion to celebrate their work and to surface names of some folks who, you know, aren't still working or might have gotten less attention, you know, from several decades ago. Great. But, I, like, what are, are we supposed to, like, go back in time and, like, mind control the very male lions of new journalism into having felt differently about the world when they were in it? Well, like, I don't uh, understand. Steve, are you going to be the uh, the male feminist on our show who excoriates Talese for these boneheaded m- remarks? I don't know that I'll excoriate him, but I, I just want to get some more of them on the record so we're clear about exactly what we're saying. The more he talked, the more trouble I felt he got into. He went on to say, I think women, educated women, writerly women, don't want to or do not feel comfortable dealing with strangers or people that I'm attracted to. It's sort of the offbeat character is not reliable. Uh, I can't imagine, he continues, I can't imagine a woman wanting to be chronicler of a voyeur, which is the subject of his current piece in The New Yorker, or the gangsters I hung around with, or the aforementioned The Neighbor's Wife, his big book about porno stars and and, uh, porn directors and swingers. Anyway, I mean, listen, I think parsing the language of a octogenarian literary lion in order to tripwire one's own politically correct responses is the pastime of a ninny. I think we can all agree about that. Given a chance to deepen and extend his remarks, I don't think he did himself any favors. He brought the subject into the present tense by invoking his current piece. So he's implying that writerly women still don't want to hang out with disreputable characters, which of course is silly. Okay, so he's 84. He's maybe not expected to rigorously obey the canons of of politically correct speech like the rest of us. I think there it needs to at least be pointed out that there's something of a history here, that there are several incidents from his career where he showed a kind of naughty knowing and naughty lack of respect for women, especially women writers, aspiring women writers, a famous incident, now famous incident in 1964, where he leans over Gloria Steinem in the back of a cab to say to Saul Bellow that, you know, Saul, how every year a pretty woman comes to New York and pretends to be a writer. Well, Gloria is the latest model of that. Um, I'm quoting loosely. You know, (laughs) you have to ask yourself how much of a current public figure a person wants to be, regardless of age. And if you want to be a current public figure, 
you have to fit in with the current mores. You can't, I mean, what, how fair is it for him to bring the standards uh, for gendered speech of 1960 into a conversation being held in 2016? He wants to be a much-discussed writer, uh, as evidenced by this incredibly long, very controversial New Yorker piece that's in the current issue. If you want to be current, you have to eat that whole cake. You don't get to take your own pretty little slice of it and then say, oh, God, no one has a sense of humor. Yeah, no, I I agree. I mean, one of the things that disturbed me about the Twitter response is that there was so much focus on his influences, which like, it's like attraction. You can't help who you're influenced by. You can't Mm -hmm. help who you're attracted to. Like the heart wants what it wants and the pen follows what it follows anyway whatever <laughs> like that part less so but i agree the the comments that followed immediately at the conference about you know female journalists being less enterprising or less uh desirous of hanging out with unsavory or poor or less educated characters are just patently false and stupid and he did definitely shift the tense there from, you know, the genteel women of the 1950s to just women in journalism right now. And then he tried to kind of undo that when he was subsequently interviewed about the flap uh, in a couple different venues and noted, sort of fell back on the historical defense that I have just vociferously made for him that, you know, he, you know, he couldn't help who was writing and who he happened to be following when he was young. And like, so be it. But he did definitely kind of shift into present tense in his remarks there. And, you know, I do come away from this incident thinking less of him as a observer of the culture because he seems so blinkered about half of it. And, you know, some of that's probably apparent in the historical work when you read it. It's not necessarily the most surprising thing to learn about Gay Talese and the way he views men and women in the world. But I did find the initial response to it to be just so ill-pitched and Mm. depressing. Well, especially given that it is paired with a piece that is about voyeurism and about him following a voyeur and essentially becoming a voyeur along with him, right? This guy who who built special passageways in his motel so that he can spy on people having sex in the hotel. It's a very strange story, and to have it come out the same week that these retrograde comments are made, I can understand the flap. But at the same time, I just just feel like feminism has bigger fish to fry than making sure Mm. that every 84-year-old man says the right thing that he's supposed to say at some conference. Like, let's elect a woman president instead dead. (laughs) Mm, All right. I think definitely as a culture, we've lost a certain grace in the presence of the elderly. And we're unused to nudging ourselves in the direction of meeting them halfway. And that to me is the shame. It's not even precisely the feminist issues, which of course I care about. And I guess the kind of mamby-pamby slice the baby in half answer here is that, you know, would that the elderly had this grace at meeting us halfway too, and there was some way to have a dialogue between generations that wasn't instantly contentious because codes of speech have, have, have evolved. Do we want to get into the motel piece at all, or the politics of the motel piece, or is that just too much? I mean, we haven't even gotten to yet the various like subsidiary controversies that have concatenated out from it. First, there was the set of exchanges with Nicole Hannah-Jones, a terrific journalist with the New York Times Magazine, who was also at the conference and who described her interactions with Talese in an article on Rewire. And then in a style section piece about Talese's response to the Twitter flap about his remarks. He noted those comments and then referred to Nicole Hannah-Jones as duplicitous, thus causing both Dean Bacay, the editor of the New York Times, and the public editor of the New York Times to weigh in on the inappropriateness of that style section 
piece, thus causing Eric Wemple of the Washington Post to weigh in on the inappropriateness of those remarks on the inappropriate. Yeah, so there's like a little micro journalism scandal about the etiquette of reporting on the involvement of a Times reporter with Gaetalese in the Times. And there was also an entirely separate controversy around the piece that Gaetalese had written for The New Yorker. In the piece, he follows a man who owns and operates a motel that he has designed specially to allow him to spy on his guests, which he does over several decades out of some misguided sense of social anthropology. Talese uh, follows him for several decades, actually joins him as a voyeur and watches on at least one occasion from the rooms above the guests' rooms. And, you know, the voyeurism itself is something that you you might or might not report to the police. But Talese also uncovered in his, in his reporting that uh, before he'd ever encountered this fellow, one of the things he'd witnessed in the hotels was a murder which he didn't do anything to prevent or stop until it was over, whereupon the hotel owner called the cops to come collect the body. So this piece has set off a whole separate set of debates, including uh, a piece in Slate, uh, about what the journalist's responsibility is to intervene or not intervene when they're covering the activities of various people engaged in various sorts of malfeasance. And I think that's a more open question but there have been lots of little controversies around the work of Gaetalese that we could discuss this week. So there have just been a whole host of controversies, all of which I guess does go to the argument that Talese is a man present in the current culture and to the degree that he's talking about modern journalism, we should be able to hold him accountable. I'm curious mm. what you guys made of the voyeurism critique, though. Like, you know, I understand why this piece made a lot of people, including our own Isaac Chotner queasy, but I do think that it's important for journalists to be able to embed with and cover all kinds of activities in their pursuit of understanding either criminal organizations or just the weirdness of the human mind. And I'm not sure that I agree with Isaac, even though I thought his piece and set of criticisms were smart. What did you guys think? I don't know. While I was reading Isaac, I mean, he's such a persuasive writer that I I, I did feel convinced by it. But it's true that voyeurism, I mean, in a way, journalists, uh, good journalism, good investigative journalism requires a certain amount of undercover activity. But a point that I agreed with in Chotner's takedown of the piece is that it's not quite clear what the larger social implications or importance of r- reporting on this guy, Gerard Foos, was that his name? Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. individual kind of sicko who had a weird motel. It makes for some some sort of interestingly lurid reading, but it's not quite clear what's so important about it that he, he had to accompany him for mm-hmm. decades. Right. It's also, I mean, the whole thing was set up extremely conveniently from Gay Talese's point of view, uh, which is to say that he found out about this man in 1980 when he wrote him out of the blue, uh, has been reporting on it in one way or another, therefore, for close to four decades. All right. And additionally, Talese was able to hide behind a confidentiality agreement that he signed upon pretty much meeting Foos, um, which quote unquote prevented him from going anywhere, including to the authorities to tell anybody this man was doing it. I think what whatever ill-defined obligation journalists have to be phantoms in the presence of the reality that they're reporting on probably doesn't cover a 36-year silence that you then get to break conveniently at exactly the moment you're ready to publish the piece um, because you've reached some you know, either your own age gives you a certain kind of impunity or statutes of limitations have expired. You know, once you're suddenly, you know, safely away from the legal implications of your own silence, the guy conveniently revokes the confidentiality agreement and you reap all of the benefits of your silence and complicity. I find it unsavory in the extreme. I mean, how would you feel if in decade number two or three of this guy's 
uh, malfeasance, you were one of the people whose private life was um, spied upon. And there was someone out there who could have nipped it in the bud, but didn't for, I mean, it has to be said, I mean, for purely self-interested reasons. I mean, what great cause is served by his silence? I mean, we're not dealing with the Panama Papers or the Pentagon Papers. We're not dealing with state secrets. We're not dealing with embedding with Marines and Fallujah. We're dealing with an entirely fucking prurient piece of writing, right? And God knows how many hundreds or thousands of people's lives were compromised by Gay Talese's silence for what fucking benefit? I mean, for the benefit of one goddamn journalist who wants to go out on a glorified high note at the end of his career. I mean, I kind of side with Isaac on this one. I mean, I hate to be a moralist, but I just, it, it, it's frankly sort of repulsive. And it's the very worst of the new journalists having it both ways every single fucking time. You call them on anything and they just brandished the word new oh it's new journalism like you have some old-fashioned like ridiculous you know uh puritanical sense of what journalism should be and it, it allowed quote-unquote new journalists to violate you know virtually any you know ethical stricture along the way to producing you know titillating copy well i think that's where I, that's really interesting Stephen. i think that is where his remarks about women do come back around to the lens through which you view his work. Like a lot of the new journalists, a lot of the new journalists were men. And a part of what went along with that style of journalism was a sense of like hubris and entitlement and a lack of decorum and sense of mischief that both made some of their work very invigorating, embracing to read, but also comes with a certain disregard for the norms and expectations of others that seems baked in in a bunch of other ways. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, frankly, that also was often about men and men's sexual prerogatives. And it's it's there's a certain disposability to the way Talese treats those decades of men and women who got spied on in the story. The, the one thing that does make me queasy, though, is the the kind of calculus. Does the social or civic merit of the story warrant the particular journalistic tactic and it the calculus in this one the answer may be no that may be true but i resist the notion that the only important stories to do are the ones that are about the panama papers or in fallujah Mm -hmm. like i do think an individual profile of a particular weirdo done right with the right lens could be could be worth a lot of journalistic risk i don't sure i'm not sure that i agree with it in this case but i guess that's part of what i resist about this criticism is the notion Mm -hmm. of like just because it's a profile of one wackadoo means X. And it, it may mm-hmm. be true that this particular profile of this particular wackadoo is not worth the very convenient set of things that Gatelis did not do that allowed him to like let this set of crimes continue mm-hmm. and land him with a, a, a big juicy story and book at the end of his career. But 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 it's that it, I, I think you've helped me put my finger on it. It's that thread in the criticism that, that irks me mm-hmm. a bit because I do think the profile of individual weirdos can be a very important part of journalism. But in a way, he mm-hmm. becomes as much a focus of the story as the weirdo. You know, he becomes the other voyeuristic weirdo upon whom he's reporting. And the most unsavory moment in that, I think we can all agree, is when he does nothing about having heard that this guy witnessed a murder years before. And the excuse that he gives for it, that Talese gives for it in the story, is something like, what could I do? The woman was already dead, <laughs> right? <laughs> By which logic, like, every murder victim is unworthy of being... Of, of justice because hell they're already dead right mm. all right well um there's you know we're sort of brimming over with things to say about this that can't all be said in the confines of the show so if you have an opinion about it come and vociferate at facebook.com slash culture fest 
Okay, and now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor. Julia, what do we have? This week's Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Scorebig. Whether you are excited to go see Beyonce's stadium tour or Rihanna's anti-tour or some baseball teams battling it out in the sunshine, you can use scorebig.com to pay less for better seats. Scorebig works directly with your favorite teams and artists to get their unsold seats at unpublished prices. And for certain events on Scorebig, you can name a ticket price and be guaranteed to pay below box office up to 60% off. Go to scorebig.com and find the event and seats you want. Make an offer with Scorebig's name a ticket price feature and you'll get an instant answer and save up to 60%. The other thing to know about Scorebig is that they have no surprise fees and free shipping, which means the prices that you're scouting around for are the prices you actually pay. Next time you go see any game or show, go to Scorebig first and see how much you can save. Go to scorebig.com right now, click on the microphone and enter the promo code CULTURE and you'll save an extra $20 off your first ticket purchase. That's scorebig.com promo code CULTURE. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, moving on. For once, no amount of hype can exceed the truth. Merle Haggard really, truly was one of the greats. He's certainly in the conversation for the greatest country singer and country songwriter of all time, right in there with Hank Williams, Johnny Cash, George Jones, you name it, Merle is right in there, right up there. Uh, He died last week at the age of 79. We can roll out the superlatives and the factoids, approaching 40 number one country billboard charts. You know, he wrote, today I started loving you again. It's as close to a universal country standard as you're likely to find. It's been covered something like 400 times. He was a fiddler, a guitar player, a great singer, a great songwriter, a great performer. We're joined by Jody Rosen, contributor to the New York Times Magazine, to talk about the great Merle Haggard. Jody, welcome to the show. Thanks, Steve. Jody, this is Merle Haggard is one of those musicians you and I are um, one of those rare musicians you and I are going to agree <laughs> on. I would assume completely. Um, he really is so big and so gigantic and so beloved. Um, I'm going to leave it to you to pick where to start this conversation. Yeah, well, I mean, you said rightly that he's one of the great country singers of all time and i think that's it's that that we should underline first and foremost which is i mean he was a he was as you say a fantastic songwriter a great musician played guitar fiddle bass started out as a bassist and of course he was a kind of larger than life he had a larger than life persona he was kind of the um you know the paragon of a certain kind of off, outsider authenticity in country music the 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 mm-hmm. definitive outlaw but it's as a singer that i think his his true or greatest greatness lies so, mm-hmm. um, you know, when th- I, I think we we might start there and just by maybe listening to a song to hear him hear him in action. Why don't we listen to a ballad called If We Make It Through December? If we make it through December Everything's gonna be alright, I know It's the coldest time of winter I shiver when I see the falling snow. What a wonderful song. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, what I think you hear there is the kind of like the artful artlessness of it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. it's that it's that quality of, um, uh, of you know, singing, singing, but really so- almost sounding like he's speaking. You know, if you tried to sing that in the shower, it wouldn't, wouldn't sound too good. But it doesn't, mm-hmm. it, do- it certainly doesn't sound like he's emoting in any way. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the, uh, the rhythm of the sentences too, like the if you read that on a piece of sheet music, it would be very hard to like map exactly how the syllables 
it, it, it's very talkative how he's is it phrasing is that, yeah is exactly, that what phrasing exactly. Is? the way he syncopates the lines you know he's 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 an expert phraser so he really he was a big jazz fan um you know western swain is a style that was really a fusion um jazz swain and and country and you know haggard was uh, you know the, the the his sort of beat play what he does with the rhythm of any given vocal line is very very subtle and, yeah, yeah i mean it's really complicated but when i think of phrasing and you think of like Sinatra or somebody who's kind of like ostentatiously like hanging back from the beat for a minute and then like gushing forth. It's so quiet compared to that. And and mm-hmm. and yet there's like a lot going on when you listen with an ear for that. Exactly. But Haggard, you know, really did early on in his life spend time in jail. And his outlaw was someone who'd really been on the wrong side of the law as opposed to someone who was posturing as such. Can you talk a little bit about that biography and, and some of the music that comes out of that experience of incarceration. Yeah, so so Haggard was born in Oildale, California, which, as the name suggests, was an oil town outside of Bakersfield in, in Southern California. Um, he was uh, his upbringing was hard scrabble to say the least. He was his first family home was a converted boxcar. His father turned a boxcar into the the family home, um, and he was raised. He, he was a strict religious upbringing, but Haggard was a rebel, a rebel and a ne'er do well. Got in trouble with the law. As a teenager, lots of burglary and various other offenses and wound up doing a stint in San Quentin for, I think, on a burglary charge. Um, And in fact, it was there in San Quentin that he saw Johnny Cash perform. And this is a kind of famous part of the Haggard lore. He said this is what inspired him and he knew this is what he had to do with his life. But Although he already played guitar at that point, right? He played guitar since early teens. Right. But he wrote a lot about... um, about his scrapes of the law, about his regrets, about his um, his earlier misdeeds, and the kind of you know his struggle with his his demons, and his maybe his most famous anthem is the song "Mama Tried," one of the great country hits ever. Um, so maybe we should give that a listen. First thing I remember knowing was a lonesome whistle blowing and a youngin's dream growing up to ride. On a freight train leaving town Not knowing where I'm bound No one to change my mind Mama tried The one and only rebel child From a family meek and mild My mama seemed to know what lay in store Despite all my Sunday learning With the bad I kept on turning Till mama couldn't hold me anymore And I turned 21 in prison Doing life without parole No one could steer me right But mama tried, mama tried, mama tried To raise me better But her pleading I denied That leaves only me to blame Cause mama tried So fucking great. (laughs) (laughs) What can you say, right? Right. It just defies words. How good it is, Jody. As the uh, the obit in the the Times for Merle Haggard pointed out, he's always and forever associated with his 1969 song "Oki from Muskogee." I feel like we have to talk about that song because there are many non-country music listeners to whom that represents everything that Merle Haggard was. Um, can you can you talk about the that song and its reception? Okay, so this this song was released in 1969, kind of at the height of the um, you know late 60s culture wars, and the song was written in the voice of a of a kind of a middle American everyman who um, 
small town every man who had it up to here with, um, you know, the draft Dodgers, the draft Dodgers, Country Joe and the, the fish, yeah, the the, the bra burners, <laughs> um, the hippies. We don't smoke marijuana in Muskogee. We don't take no trips on LSD. We don't burn no draft cards down on Main Street. We like living right, being free. And we don't make no party out of loving. We like holding hands and pitching woo. We don't let our hair grow long and shaggy. Like the hippies out in San Francisco do. And I'm proud to be an Okie from Muskogee. A place where even squares. Everything about the song and the performance is marvelous except the sentiment. I mean, and, you know, he came to regret, Jody, correct? He he came to regret how much this uh, silent majoritarian, you know, anthem defined him. Yeah. And I mean, and and I mean, there's there remains a question about the extent to which he was being ironic, whether this was some haggard defenders will say, well, you know, he never really meant it. It was sort of a send up of both sides of the culture war but uh, you know i mean it articulates a uh real sentiments you know and those are sentiments of people who who haggard knew really well um you know and he he came from you know working class the name of the song is okie from muskogee right his his family migrated from oklahoma to california in the great depression you know fleeing the dust bowl so i mean it, there's the the kind of class animus that seeps through that song is that mm-hmm. that was a real feeling and so now we have a, a a wonderfully written song that immortalizes that you know so whether or not haggard himself those were his precise politics and i think they really weren't i mean if you look at if you look at just him, his life, his biography, he wound up in the in the 80s, he had kind of like a lost weekend for several years where he and Willie Nelson hung out on a boat just having orgies and s- smoking more weed than you can imagine. So, <laughs> it, it's, so it doesn't quite <laughs> jive with his own life. Yeah. But he so, does have other songs that, that express that a certain kind of um, uh, conservative nostalgia. You know, I was thinking of that song, Are the Good Times Really Over for Good, which mm-hmm. is a beautiful song, which is a straight up expression of, you know, that, that desire to, to stand astride history and say stop, right? And that and that's the that's like a like one of the biggest impulses behind all of country music. Country is the most conservative of all American popular music genres, not just aesthetically. And in fact, not aesthetically not as much as one might suppose but you know it, it definitely articulates like white working class middle american political ideas more forcefully than any other genre and you know oki from muskoki there's there are a million variations on oki from muskoki in the years since and arguably before but you know one of the one of my favorite songs of his is actually a, it's a it's a reagan era song it's from 1985 i think this is one of his greatest performances and certainly one of his 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 um his greatest Psalms, qua psalm that he ever wrote. It's um, it's called Kern River. I'll never swim Kern River again. It was there that I met her. It was 
there that I lost my best friend And now I live in the mountains I drifted up here with the wind And I may drown in still water But I'll never swim Kern River again Oh, Jody, that song is so, so beautiful. The one thing I wanted to mention about, about Merle Haggard in this conversation at some point is that I saw him perform live not that long ago, I would say, since my kid was born. So it must have been in the last 10 years. And my friend, the musician, a musician friend of mine who wanted to, to go see Merle Haggard, had to convince me that he would be worth seeing because he, he was just so old. I was saying, like, Merle, Merle Haggard is great, but, you know, I don't want to go and see him all sort of broken down and feeble. He was nothing like that. He put on an incredible show in a very intimate sort of club-like space and was just every bit the performer that he must have been decades before. Yeah, he's a great performer. He had a, his his band, The Strangers, were a kick-ass band. And he kept on touring until very near the end of his life, right? Ve- yeah, very near the end of his life. And the uh, one thing I would say that maybe we didn't get into is the guy had a great sense of humor. He was, among other things, a great impressionist and mimic. And there's a YouTube clip that we should post on the Facebook page, which shows Haggard on some variety show doing impressions of other country singers. He does Hank Snow, he does Johnny Cash, he does Buck Owens. And it is amazing. Oh, we have to link to that. I love a good song mimic. Yeah, those are really wonderful. Jody, it's always just a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Steve. All right, well, now's the moment in our podcast we talk about our other, other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? The Slate Culture Gab Fest is also sponsored this week by the funny new road trip novel, The Haters. It's by me and Earl and the Dying Girl author and screenwriter Jesse Andrews and published by Amulet Books. Inspired by the years he spent playing bass in a band himself, The Haters is a rock novel about music, love, friendship, and freedom that follows three young musicians as they escape from jazz camp and attempt to dodge the law just long enough to play the show of their dreams. Roddy Doyle, the author of The Commitment, says The Haters is terrific. It's shocking and funny, unsettling and charming. And Booklist calls it a raunchy bromance in the vein of Superbad. Jesse Andrews's The Haters is perfect for anyone who has ever loved and hated a song. Share the band you hate to love using the hashtag The Haters Book. All right, Steve, what's next? All right, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse Day Now, what do you have? Well, this week I'm listening to an audiobook from Audible, so they get another free ad placement from us just because I happen to be loving this book. And it is um, Dickens' Nicholas Nickleby, read by Simon Vance. So I'm endorsing two things. If for one thing, Dickens. I mean, I'm sure that he has greater <laughs> works. I'm aware that Nicholas Nickleby is an, is like an early work that's considered lesser. And I'm sure a bunch of people will write me saying, oh, but Bleak House is much more nuanced, whatever. <laughs> it's Dickens. It's great. And the other thing that I wanted to endorse is that Simon Vance reads this book with the most incredible characterization, skill. I mean, when you're reading a a Dickens novel, right, it's so sprawling. There's so many social types. It's sort of like acting an entire Shakespeare play by yourself. And the amount of character that Simon Vance gets into these voices without ever kind of overdoing it or putting on the dog is just incredible. He gets the, the, the humor. He gets the irony. He gets the like bracing social critique. He just gets Dickens completely. And it is such a pleasure to have it read to you. In fact, I sort of feel like I never want to read a Dickens book again. I just want Simon Vance to read them all to me. Uh, Fantastic endorsement, Dana. Um, uh, Julia, what do you got? So I was going to save this endorsement for a few weeks hence because I am midway through a 700-page book, but the subject of the book is musical, and I'm curious about whether Jody has read it. So I will pre-endorse it this week because I am enjoying it. I'm reading A Brief History of Seven Killings, which is the Marlon James book that I think won the Booker this past year and is about an attempt on Bob Marley's life. And it's kind of like a cross. This is like a 
ludicrous analogy, but I'm, I'm going to soldier forth with it. It's like a cross between Wolf Hall and Game of Thrones for Jamaica. Wolf Hall in that it has this extensive cast of characters. It's a fat book, but I recommend not reading it on Kindle because you are constantly referring back to the front pages where it lists all the characters and who they are. And Game of Thrones, just in that it's many short chapters that switch voices and switch subjectivity. So you're in the mind of various people in the slums of Kingston, various would-be assassins, random Jamaican women, CIA agents, music industry hangers-on, spies, politicians, ghosts, like you're constantly in the brain and in the patois of like different, very different people. And it's totally fascinating and very mired in bits of 70s music history, the portion of it that I'm in right now, including some extraordinary aside that I came across last night about how Eric Clapton once stood up and gave a speech about um, how white people should take back England, which I was like, I, that wasn't in my Clapton file. And then I wikipedia it. And in fact, such a speech happened. Um, anyway, Jody, have you read this book? I actually went out and bought it in hardcover immediately after reading Dwight Garner's review when the book first came out and it's just been sitting up there on the shelf staring at me. But it sounds like a job for Simon Vance. <laughs> all those voices. And in fact, this reminds me that Simon Vance actually did the audiobooks of Wolf Hall and Bringing Up the Bodies or whatever it's called. Ah, so, full yeah, circle. Full circle. Oh, so maybe that's how I'll experience yeah. those books too. Yeah. I, I actually did sort of feel like reading is done now. Reading is, is, is I'm just going back to the fire, fireside and oral poetry with Simon Vance. That's all I need. And maybe, Mar maybe Marlon James... There's a there's a great nar narrator on Audible of Marlon James's book, so maybe we can just perhaps I don't know. I this book I will say like if you're trying to read it in seven minute increments before you fall asleep at night, it's it's a little hard to get into because there's just so much to follow between the language and the characters and the sprawling plot. But if you carve out a few like hour long chunks to get invested in it, it's just really interesting and good. So I will I will report back with a full verdict once I get through page 700, whatever the hell. But uh, from from midway in the 200s, I'm liking it. Fantastic. Um, Jody, what do you have? Okay, so I've really been getting into this writer, a guy named Horatio Clare. He's a, he's a young or youngish English nonfiction writer, British guy. Actually, he's from Wales, I think, or was, was raised in Wales. Um, and uh, I first read a book of his called Down to the Sea in Ships, which is about a trip he took or two trips he took on huge container ships, Maersk container ships. So I, I love reading books about the sea and seafaring. And, uh, also, any excuse to say Maersk. Maersk, right. Best, best <laughs> right. like company brand name. Just got some great vowels and consonants happening in there. Yeah. But anyway, so Claire, he's a great... He's a great writer. He's a great reporter, a great essayist, and and really a poet. He's one of those guys who's writing. He he can reel off a great lyrical passage without overdoing it. Um, and he's just kind of like one of these guys who's who's blessed with not just talent and intelligence, but taste, like perfect pitch. So he he just all his books are such a pleasure to read, and you feel like you're in the hands of a, a real master. And so I've read a bunch of his other books. He writes a lot about nature. He's written about birds things like that. He's done children's books. But what I'm going to endorse in particular is I heard a, a piece of audio. It was a, I guess, a, a guess you'd call it a podcast. It's a 12-minute essay that he wrote and spoke at the Hay Literary Festival last year. And the he was asked, along with several other writers, to answer the question, why I write? I guess it was like a, you know, it was some sort of tribute to Orwell. 
Um, and that's a question which can, you know, is like a, is either the best or the worst question. I think it's actually one that really exposes you because it can bring out like the worst kinds of pretentiousness and send like kind of lesser writers scrambling for cliches or just bloviating about, you know, literature <laughs> and writing. But but he, his his version of this was so smart and so charming and so incredibly moving. And it takes in reminiscences of his school days. He talks about visiting a hospital to see a child brought back from a near-death experience. He talks about his time on, on the ships. And the end of it, it has like the, the most incredible kicker thing, which like left me like weeping into my earbuds. So it's 12 minutes long. Everybody's got to check it out. It's Horatio Clare. I think it's on, it's on the BBC. So it's Horatio Clare uh, delivering an essay on why I write. I will check that out. That sounds great. I want to figure out how to weep into my earbuds. I guess if you were lying down, maybe the tears would find their way. The, the earbuds slipped out and then the tears spilled off. I don't know. Especially the little Apple ones. You have to really have good aim with your tears. It would be easier to weep into your beats um, by Dre. This is truly one of the great endorsement segments ever. So let me now bring the Zeppelin down to the ground in flames. But um, So very quickly, two endorsements. One is that since it got you know, invoked during the Merle Haggard segment, Jody, I think I have to endorse the Tiffany transcriptions by Texas Bob Wills. Um, you know, he did a series of radio broadcasts with his best band, his best Texas swing band back in the forties, I believe mid forties. They are, they're astonishing. It is a box set. So eminently worth getting that music combines jazz, um, and country music in this totally unexpected omni-american way it's just it's just some of my favorite music of all time jody i know your silence no no yeah, yeah. it i endorse <laughs> i endorse <laughs> no no yeah yeah the you best endorse. possible <laughs> response to an endorsement yeah no but well, some other things the music is so fun it is just so fun it's it, it's fun yeah. exactly yeah uh, and then very quickly i mentioned the movie diner at the live show and uh, I just wanted to follow up on that and say a listener to our show sent a link via our Facebook page to an article that Vanity Fair ran in 2012 about the movie, the making of the movie and the influence and afterlife of the movie that for those who haven't seen it or experienced it or haven't have loved it, it's just a wonderful piece of journalism by S.L. Price. And it really gets at why that movie was um was historic in ways that that a slice of life movie you wouldn't expect a slice of life movie to have been, but the case is very persuasively and very charmingly made. So highly recommended. We'll link to it on our Facebook page. Uh, Jody, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks, Steve. Dana and Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, thanks, Steve. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on iTunes.com slash Panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Julia Turner, Dana Stevenson, Jody Rosen, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you soon. I'm at Tommy. Roly-poly, eating corn and taters. Yeah. Hungry every minute of the day. Holy gnawing on a biscuit, long as he can chew it, it's okay.